Welcome to this edition of Why We Plan. My name is John Brown. I'm the founder of BEI, which is a company that trains and supports business advisors all over North America in helping them to create more value and have uh, for business owners uh, and eventually help them exit the business on their terms. With me today is Stuart. I think you would like to go by Stu. Stuart, it's fine. Okay, Stuart, great. Sorkin. Uh, welcome, Stuart. You have an interesting life and story to tell, so why don't you begin with a little bit of background of your business experience and then share a story with us. Okay. Um, I, have a J I have a law degree. I am, have a CPA. I have a master's in tax, but probably what distinguishes me most in the area of, of working with clients is that in 1983, I started the tax application software division for Coopers and Librand. And in a four-year period, I built a department to 13 people, which gives me a very different perspective compared to most attorneys and mm -hmm. CPAs. And since it was software development, um, I understand a lot more about how that industry works. And I still use a lot of the skills there today to help do modeling for clients, to do projections, to figure out the most optimal tax or business structure for a transaction and allows the clients to sometimes, you know, play some what-if games to figure out alternatives. So that's great. Who would be a typical client? Typical client is probably a business owner who has a business that's doing revenues somewhere between Five and $15 million. Um, they tend to be, my areas of practice tend to be a lot in the area of professional services companies, architecture firms, law firms, doctors, dentists, government contractors since I'm in D.C. And then I have sort of a national practice that I've developed in the area of auto body shops. Really? That's uh, interesting. My first client, one of my first clients was an auto body shop and was a eventually turned into a transition plan and the son decided after running the business for a while, he liked consulting better and he consults across the country on body shops mm -hmm. and for various body shop owners and he runs groups and I've made presentations to these groups and now I'm on the Exalta website, I'm on Sherwin-Williams website because paint is one of the major things that goes into body works and, and into so. body shops. And so <clears throat> they sponsor education because they want those people, they want to keep their clients mm -hmm. and not lose them to the other paint companies. Well, uh, why don't you take us through, um, a, again, not a typical client because all clients are a little bit different, but take us through how you represent one of those owners just through the whole planning process. Okay. And what the result was at the end? The, I believe that succession planning fails when either the owner hasn't crystallized their goals, the partners haven't aligned their goals, the owners are not willing to invest financially in their business, or they are failing to refuse to delegate because they are not creating some, a business that has value beyond themselves. So in order to do that, I talk to each 
founder individually and try to talk to them, get them to meet with their financial planner to mm -hmm. get their number, talk to them about family in the business, family outside of the business, if they're going to exit, what do they think they're going to do, do we need to worry about them doing new businesses where we want to take some chips off the table, do creditor protection, what are, what are the situation if, God forbid, they got hit by a bus? Looking at all of mm -hmm. those basic areas, making sure their estate plan is integrated with their business plan. And then I give each of the, quest each of the partners a questionnaire that I ask them to fill out separately, and then we do a facilitation. Questions are, tell me the strengths of the business. Tell me the weaknesses of the business. Tell me your strengths. Tell me your weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you love doing at work. Tell me what you hate doing at work. Tell me what you're doing when you're not working. Talk to me about how you communicate with each other. The one that usually gets a snicker is compare communication with your partner and that of your spouse. Now, five years from now, tell me about this business. What's your role in it? What's its size? What are you doing when you're not working? With the concept of being able to build consensus around a five-year plan, based on the Monte Carlo analysis, I know whether or not I have a positive delta, which means I legacy, tax planning, et cetera, or a negative delta. And if I have a negative delta, can I do it through internal growth, or do I have to become a strategic acquirer? If we're going to become a strategic acquirer, what are you going to acquire? Acquisition for the sake of acquisition doesn't grow the value of a business. What can you Have you built your own due diligence library that the bank's going to want? Have you built the due diligence checklist to integrate the acquisition? What can you afford? And then the final and most important question. Mr. Founder, you've told me you hate doing this. You've showed me in the past you really don't like delegation. Do you want to try something different? <laughs> yeah. And if they are willing to try, then we go to the next step, which is basically developing a set of recommendations with timetables, budgets, et cetera, to implement whatever plan is, whether for its growth or eventual succession. So how do you get, so when you have an owner who doesn't want to delegate, and they pretty much have their hands on everything that's going on in the business, which is very typical for a lot of smaller businesses especially, how, but it's going to be necessary for them to delegate if the business is to grow and thrive or maybe even survive. Yes. How do you get that owner to loosen her grip on the business? Well, as I said, the first thing, I, I want to pick, pick a subject that they hate doing. Because if you can build, it's the idea of building some confidence. If the idea is they can be, feel some confidence in delegation after the delegation of something they don't like, mm -hmm. Getting them to delegate what they do like becomes a little bit easier because there's some proof in the concept. And as the point is, I'm going to say to them, you say you want to improve your quality of life. You tell me you hate doing this. Why wouldn't you consider delegating? And they're going to say, well, because nobody else in the company can do it. And my comment is, and this is what I have started to do with my founders. I said, <coughs> I want a list of everything that you do that no one else does in this firm. Then I want you to take everyone, have a column, and list every one of your key employees. And I want you to rate them on a one to five on each of those pieces. And no, there's not gonna be a perfect answer, but we're gonna find the best. Well, and I think that's really uh, great advice for those of you listening in, 
I mean, every advisor, I would think, who represents business owners would want to get to this point where they're really dealing with the primary obstacles in many ways that prevent the owner from moving the business forward and being able to someday exit it. That's right. And the point is that the only way you can have a successful is by having goals that are achievable, <clears throat> measurable, with accountability. And the point is, founders are the worst ones for setting their own goals. And if they don't set goals, getting the employees to follow goals that aren't being followed by the owners is very difficult. Do what I say, not what I do does not work well, especially, I find, with millennials and the younger generation. <clears throat> I think those that are Gen Xs and baby boomers were a little more respectful of owners and owners that yeah. do something for the most part, it would happen. Millennials tend to question a lot more, and if you are not definitive in those goals, I think you really hurt yourself with the millennials. That's, I think that's a great point. So part of almost the first part of exit planning, the way we do it at BEI, is to determine goals. And so you probably have heard of SMART goals, which stands for they're specific, they're measurable, they're attainable, they're relevant, and they're time-based. So if you start working with owners and we talk, we're talking about goals, they're going to be all over the place. They've given thought to their goals, but they, they, first of all, haven't kind of matched them up with other goals that might be less important but still relevant. And that's why exit planning advisors are so critical. Even where your business owner is smart as can be and successful, they're not going to be able to process all of this well because they've never had to. No and, one, and they the, haven't and, talked and, to Stuart yet. And, and the issue is with, with, with it is that the business <clears throat> owner, one of the reasons most business owners succeed is their belief in themselves, which also makes them, once they become successful, the smartest man in the room, which why they run against delegation. And so you are fighting human nature mm -hmm. of what made them successful and telling them that You've, that success has, can only carry you so far. If you don't let loose, you will not reach the next level. And that's the piece of getting people to let go. It's like saying, if you don't let go, you can't reach that next level. So what's the next step for people who are willing to let go? What do you, what do you then do with your clients? Well, as I said, what I would do is come up with a detailed set of proposals regarding their buy-sell agreements, if they're partners, regarding their employment agreements, regarding coming up with some form of incentive compensation that's going to align goals, mm -hmm. working with them on improving their quality of life. Let me give you a real quick war story on improving quality of life. I was working with a business where husband and wife were both in there. I think husband was 60, wife was late 50s. Husband had already started the transition. Wife was hating, she was the CFO and she was hating life. She's like, I can't stand it. I'm not seeing my kids and everything else. I went down there and I observed something and I said, you're gonna do me a favor. You're gonna do a time report for the next two weeks of what you're spending your time on. 
and it proved out what I thought, which was her office was right outside the front desk. And every time there was a customer relationship problem, she would get out of her chair and try to solve it, and her work wasn't getting done. We physically moved her office to another section, and within two months, she said, I'm getting out here at 7. You know, maybe I want to acquire one more, one more store before we sell. So it's not always money that's going to deal with quality of life. It's, and that's why also delegation of what you hate. Because yeah. if you love what you do, you're not working. And that's the joy you should have until the time it's no longer fun. And if you've hit your number, then you can walk. You know, what's, I think what's really valuable, Stuart, in what you were just talking about, is I don't think most advisors ask questions related to an owner's quality of life. They're saying, how much money do you want? What's your cash flow? When do you want to leave? They don't say, you know, what is your life like today? Because if they're as happy as a lark, they're probably not going to exit. Or... The alternative is they have a, a major fear of something. An example is recently I picked up a client called <clears> me, <throat> and his biggest concern was he is right now in remission in cancer, and he was concerned about it. And the first thing, and he said, I don't think, know that my key management team has the wherewithal to buy. And so what we did was, though, we have now have employment contracts for each of them that have a, a one-year stay bonus. If something, if something happens to him, if they stay 12 months after that event, they get a bonus equal to 50% of their income, of their W-2 income. This way, quote history, someone will walk in the day after the funeral act like Alexander Haig and say, I'm in charge, and you will not have the massive defection of employees that you have when you have the death of a founder. That's great. And and again, one of the tools in BEI is exactly that. It is a stay bonus plan in, in which the owner would identify not just the key management people, but also people who are just important in running the business day to day. You know, if you lose somebody like that, it still creates a hole. The owner's no longer available <coughs> since he's passed away uh, to plug that hole. So you need to keep them. And so a, a typical stay bonus um, that our members create is usually funded by life insurance on the owner's life. In Stewart's example, life insurance may not be available. Because that, that was the, the, that's the issue. Is yeah. that if life insurance is available, you can do that. But if life insurance isn't available, and here's the other point, you need to modify your, your will or your trust to vote Say, I now, as the sole owner or the majority owner, I have put this person in as CEO in that document on my death. So there is no corporate issue. Right. And also within there, what you don't have to tell this person is you've instructed them, are they there to run it until family can take it over? Are they there to get to get it ready for sale? And you might, if it's a sale, you might put in that there's, if he successful sale, that there's some kind of kicker. But you have to have it in both places. That's the other thing is that a lot of people put it in the buy-sell agreement or have an employment agreement, but don't necessarily give the authority, the corporate right. authority, in their estate planning documents because they don't want to put it in beforehand in the corporate minutes. Right. 
right? So again, a couple of tools to consider. One is the stay bonus. So if there's not insurance available, <coughs> excuse me, but it, if the key employee stay and the owner dies, cash flow of the business is likely to continue and that will pay for the stay bonus. So let's say you've got five key employees they are each making say $100,000 a year. If the owner dies, the stay bonus might say something like, well, if I die, each of these five employees will get a 50% stay bonus, maybe paid quarterly for the next year and a half. So they will be motivated to stay with money and they will realize if they stay, the money will continue. The second thing that we, a second tool we have at BEI is similar to what Stuart's talking about. We call them business continuity instructions. And bear in mind that half of all the businesses in this country are owned by a single person. So a buy-sell agreement probably is not gonna work in half of the clients you represent. But business continuity instructions uh, are extensive. It's a software-based instruction format. And if the owner becomes totally disabled or dies, it tells everybody what the owner wants to do, who should run the business, what the banking relationships are, uh, the advisors to rely upon, et cetera. It's probably a 20-page, 20 25-page document. So this is really an essential part of the planning work that business advisors need to do. We can't just focus on growing the business. We have to do the what-if game. And that sounds like, Stuart, basically that's a lot of what you do. Exactly. And it's... It's also customizing. Let me give one of my most more recent success stories that has taken over six, it's taken, it's over the last eight years. Uh, in 2014, I met a family. Father wanted to transition to son business. He was 63. He wanted to do the transition now, uh, but he wanted to stay employed until. 65, so he could maintain his Medicare. So what we did was we did uh, sold the business with an interest-only note with principal to start once he was no longer a salaried employee, so it, it didn't create a drain on the business. The business was about worth probably around $2 million at that time. Um, through one of these networking groups in the auto body shop, and mm -hmm. this was an auto body shop, um, he met another guy, two, two brothers, who had done a similar transition, both in the same state, nice potential geographical building of a geographical region, but they hadn't worked together. And as we all know, not all mergers work well. <laughs> so I, and th this was a unique situation because they had an S-Corp, an LLC, a C-Corp, and a general partnership for the four entities. And I said, if I consolidate you guys now and this does not work, this is going to be an absolute disaster. So what we did was we formed, had a management company. All the purchasing went through the management company. All the G&A was run through the management company. But they kept their financials separate. It was a break-even. And they got to see for, for 12 months, and at the end of 12 months, if they played well in the sandbox together, 
They threw their equity into the management company. They completed their merger. If they said this isn't working, they separated. No harm, no mm -hmm. foul. Well, they didn't last 10 months before they said we're going forward. We acquired an additional three locations, and it sold, they, the total package sold for $24 million. My, my client's share that was originally worth around two was about $8.9 million. So not a bad return in six years of work. And that, that is truly the perpetuation succession plan because I think a lot of exit planners, when they're doing this, are doing a great job for Gen 1, but not explaining to Gen 2 that they need to grow if they're going to retire. They may take care of dad with this, and they may produce a lifestyle. But if they want to get what dad got, they're going to probably have to grow. And that's a piece I think that is, is, is commonly missed, is not focusing <clears throat> enough once we've done the transition on how to grow. Second gen. Second gen. So let me, that's really a great point. So when, as their advisor, so you're representing dad, let's say, and there's two daughters take, who are gonna take over the business, do you represent them as well and if so... I will give you the answer very simply. I don't represent any individual. I represent the company. Because okay. it's in the company's best interest to have a successful transition. I am providing, and, say, and so I say, each of the individuals, you want to have your own attorneys look at the documents? Fine. But my goal here is, it's got to be a win for the, it's got to be a win-win for father, if the business is going to thrive, it's got to be a win-win yeah, well, for the, the kids. For the kids, the cash flow. It's the cash flow cow, right. right? So that's. I think that's a very uh, interesting way to represent uh, multi-owners, especially in a you know so a co-owned business. I'm going to represent the business, um, and then you avoid those conflicts. Exactly. Here's my question, though. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of sharing information, so let's say you and I each own the business as 50-50. Maybe we're brothers, maybe we're not. Um, the exit planning advisor, uh, he's going to want information from you. Right. He's going to want information from me. And I'm assuming that we individually both give consent to that. Correct. And also something else. I think this is really key. When I'm acting as an attorney, they have attorney-client privilege. Yeah. If I am acting in a jurisdiction outside, they don't necessarily have privilege. So in order to make them comfortable, I give, I give them a, a non-disclosure, non-circumvention agreement that I have signed that says, should be covered by privilege, mm -hmm. but if it's not, I'm here representing the company. I'm doing in the best interest of the company. I'm not going to use any of the information to help the other person. Okay, that's interesting. And I think that's a, that's a way also to establish roles, John. I think that sometimes, as you talked about, when you have multiple father, son, taking yourself out of the conflict by representing the company is good, but then you also have to make sure that everyone understands that if it blows up, you can't testify for either side. Well, and, you know, and I think a lot of advisors um, would say, well, I'm going to represent everybody. And that it can lead to massive difficulties for the conflicts. advisor. Conflicts all over the place. 
And if you get, in family scenarios, in my experience, are the likeliest sources of these conflicts. So if you're talking to the incoming owner and maybe another incoming owner and they start to not get along, who do you represent? Yeah. <clears throat> and well, that's also where you get into buy-sell agreements. Why, as I tell clients, partnership is like marriage without sex. The only thing that brought you together was create a progeny called the business. The only thing you're going to fight about are money and control. Your stock buy-sell agreement is your business prenup. And you need to sign it before there's money on the table. Because if there's money on the table, someone's ox is going to get gored, and you may never get it done. And then you will end up in litigation. Well, I think we should conclude with the ox getting gored scenario. <laughs> Any final thoughts, Stuart? I just want to say that I <clears throat> want to be a resource to the people in this group. And um, I am... Uh, provide complimentary consultations and we'll be glad to help because most of our clients and mo do not know what they don't know about exit strategy and that's our first goal is to educate them as Cy Sims said an educated consumer is our best customer I, I think that's great advice thank you very much thank you